Before I read from Isaiah, I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Acts. I mentioned this last week that Jesus Christ, after his death and resurrection, and just before his ascension, we read in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples had some questions for him, wanting to know um, when the time would come that he would restore the kingdom. Uh, Jesus responded, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. We talked about that last week. Jesus says, it's not for you to know when I will return and when these things will take place. But he went on to say this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What I want you to see today, that there as Jesus told his followers that it is God's intent for you to be my witnesses, that God will send his spirit upon you so that you may bear witness to all the nations, to all the world. This was not the first time that something like this had been said. You're able, please remain standing, and I'm going to read this morning from Isaiah chapter 43. It's printed in your bulletin. Actually, I'll begin in verse 8 of Isaiah 43, and we'll read all the way to Isaiah 44, verse 8. Isaiah 43, verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise." Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money 
or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams." This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this passage in four sections. Here's a summary of those four sections. Uh, The first is going to be our call to witness. That'll be in verses um, 8 through the beginning of verse 10 in chapter 43 there. So that's our call to witness. Secondly, then in verses 10b to verse 21 is the testimony that we're to give as witnesses. What is the testimony that God's entrusted to us? And then Third, we're going to look at chapter 43, verses 22 to 24, and look at what hinders us. What is it that hinders us as witnesses? And then finally, in verses, or chapter 43, verse 25 to 44, verse 8, we'll see our confidence as witnesses. So our call to witness, the testimony that we have, what hinders us, and then finally, what is our confidence? as we look through this passage. So what we find here in Isaiah chapter 43 is actually a return of a theme or a a, a motif that we've seen before in Isaiah, and that is a courtroom. Here's a courtroom scene again where God calls people to gather together and to hear testimony. And he gathers together here, he says at the beginning, people who are blind and deaf. So, people who are blind and deaf come into this courtroom, and gathered there are the nations, people from all over the world, all the tribes of the earth have gathered together to hear testimony. What we find is that the accumulated knowledge of the idolaters from all the world, the accumulated knowledge of the idolaters from the nations of the world can't declare what is true. They cannot declare what is absolutely true because they've denied the one 
who is the foundation of all truth. Those who have denied the one who is himself truth, their accumulated knowledge cannot discern the one who is true or what truth is. Apart from God, no one can give testimony to ultimate truth. Uh, over the holidays of all we've had, uh, the kids at home, there have been a few different things being watched. One of them has been a documentary made by an archaeologist. This archaeologist is looking back and trying to discern uh, based on geographical features, but also uh, different ruin sites. He's trying to determine something that happened thousands of years ago. And he, he believes that about 12,000 years ago, there was some kind of worldwide cataclysm, an apocalyptic event uh, over the whole earth. And then he tries to determine what that was and then see how people responded to it. It's interesting. It's actually, it's, it's fascinating. I only saw parts of a couple episodes. It's fascinating, but it is entirely speculative He's just, he's, he's guessing at things. He's trying to understand. We know that many people do that. Try to look back and try to say, this is what happened or this is what happened or this is why people did what they did. But all of those, all of those who they, if they removed God from the equation, they're just speculating. They're speculating as to what is true. So God says, he steps into this courtroom and he says, he must have some who witness for him. Notice, what we find there back in chapter 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses. Others, uh, the, the other worshipers of idols have come and just like the idols who God has already back in, in chapter 41, he said, those idols, they have eyes and ears. You carved their eyes and ears, but they don't see, they don't hear. And he says, and you're gonna become like them. And sure enough, the worshipers of those idols, they come and they have eyes and ears, but they don't see, they don't hear. But God says to his people, but you are going to be my witnesses. So what, is it, what do we know about these witnesses of God? Well, if, you, if we were to look back, actually in chapter 42, he had said about his own people, who he's talking to here, he said, there was a time when they were blind and deaf. The Israelites themselves, though God had given them his law and he had declared through the prophets who he is and what he's done, though he had worked wonders among them, they were blind to it. They refused to see, they refused to hear. So we also saw back in chapter 42 that they were disciplined. This was, we, we read this back before Advent. This is chapter 42, verse 24. Who gave up Jacob, that is the, the Israelites, to the looters and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we've sinned? In whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So he poured on them the heat of his anger. God disciplined his people. God lovingly disciplines his people when we, are, when we are deaf and blind to him. He allows us to feel the consequence of sin. In a way, he gives us a foretaste of the coming judgment of God on the world. He lets us experience that now so that we would repent and remember, Isaiah is writing now, not just to the Israelites in his day, but he's writing to Israel 150 years later as they would be taken into captivity in Babylon. He's already predicted that. And he's speaking to them. He says, I'm going to discipline you. But they weren't only blind and deaf and therefore disciplined, but we read last time also, the beginning of chapter 43, a beautiful passage that they're loved. Chapter 43, verses one through seven, 
is one of, the, one of the most beautiful passages about God's love for his covenant people. And he says, even when you walk through the waters, that is the water of God's, God's discipline, when you walk through circumstances that you would never choose for yourself, even things that God intends to be used in your life so that you'll repent, he says, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the fire, God who pours out the heat of his anger, he says, when you pass through the fire, the flames will not consume you. I'll be with you. He says, because you're precious to me and I love you. So the people that God is calling to be his witnesses are people who, are once, who once turned a blind eye to his word and to his deeds, people who he had lovingly disciplined and walked with them through that and promised that I'll preserve you and keep you. And now he says to them, now you are my witnesses. He also refers to them as his servant. This is in verse 10. Again, you are my witnesses and my servant. The servant, we know, as we heard last week in Jesus' parable from Matthew 24, the servant's purpose is found in the master's will. The, the, the wise and faithful servant is glad for the master to return home and find that servant caring for the household. A faithful servant is eager for the master's return, Jesus says. Well, here God says of his people, you are my servant. So you will find your purpose and we will find our purpose in his intentions. We'll find actually our ultimate satisfaction in God's intention for us. So they're his witnesses that he's loved and disciplined. They're his servant and he says, whom I have chosen whom I've chosen. The Israelites were weak. They were small. They were inconsistent. They were often faithless and regularly forgetful. They were not choice people, but they were chosen people. They were select people. The way you think about like, you know, the select meat in the deli, you know, the meat that maybe you only get for the holidays. We'll go with the select cut this time. They weren't select, but they were selected by God. This isn't only true for the Israelites, it's true for us. <laughs> Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. We're weak. We're, we're frail. We're, we're not wise according to worldly standards, but God chooses the weak things and the, the foolish things in the world's eyes. This are, these are the witnesses that God chooses. Well, so how does God, how does God work in the lives of people that aren't choice, but chosen, aren't select, but are selected, who are often forgetful and weak and frail. What is he, how, how can he make such people into witnesses? Look at what he says in verse 10, continuing. He says, you're my servant whom I've chosen that, so God's chosen for this purpose, that you may know and believe me and understand that I'm he. These three, these three terms are important. First, God says, I've chosen you so that you may know me. The, the, the Hebrew word there means knowledge, and it's often knowledge gained through experience. That you may know me by experience. You may see and know me personally. This is God's desire. He wants his people to know him experientially. The, the third term here, he says, and understand 
and understand that I am he. The word there is, is like knowledge that is, that is often given, like God gives knowledge of himself, but it's also knowledge that's pursued. It's to know who God is. It's to know details about his character as we're gonna find in a minute. It's, to, it's, to pers- it's knowledge that's pursued. God says, I want you to know me experientially. I want you to know me and I want you to gain knowledge about me so that, and we find the middle term, so that you'll believe me. God has chosen people to know him, understand him, and believe him. The basic root idea of the word translated believe here is certainty or assurance. This is like, or unlike modern conceptions of the word belief or faith, we use those words now often to mean like a wishfulness. I believe I'm going to be a doctor one day. I believe it's, it's going to snow next week. You may have to travel if you want to experience that. Um, I, I, I believe that the, the future is looking bright. There's a wishfulness about it. That's not what this term means. The root idea here is certainty, that you may believe me, that you may see that I am constant, and that you can rest on me. That's what God wants of his people. This term, this idea, I think, comes up at the end of the passage again that we read today anyway in 44 verse 8 where God says this about himself. He says, there is no rock other than himself. I am the rock. I am constant. So God's desire is that we would know him and understand him, know him experientially, understand him, have a growing knowledge of who he is, what he's done, how he acts, so that we would believe, so we'd rest upon him. Now, we can't spend that much time on every verse, but I think that one's critical, that we can see this is how God wants to work in his people. He wants us to know him. So the second thing that we're gonna see is what is the testimony that we give? Well, the testimony that we give is the testimony that God has provided. We have a God who reveals himself. This is a wonder for us. So God's intention for his people is for us to, to know him as he's revealed himself experientially and personally, to understand him, to have a growing body even of knowledge as we pursue knowing him so that we could rest on him with certainty. And in order for us to have that, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So that's the second thing then. What is the testimony that we give We testify what God has revealed. This picks up in the last part of verse 10 and goes all the way to verse 21. And what we find is that God is self-attesting. He reveals himself to us. So this is our testimony. And you could look at this in three, three ways. First, his character. Look at the second part of verse 10. He says, uh, or actually where we just read, he says that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. That harkens back to God's revelation back when he says, I am has sent you to Moses. I am he. This is, the, this is God who is, who is continuing. I'm the same God. I haven't changed. He's the changeless one. And then in verse, the second part of verse 10, he says, before me, no God was formed and shall, nor shall there be any after me. So he's the changeless one. He is also eternally unique. He says, there was no God before me and there'll be no God after me. There's none other like him. He is alone. This is monotheism at its core. He is alone. 
He alone is God. He reveals that. He continues and he says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. Besides him there is no Savior. Not only is he eternally unique, but he alone saves. He alone can deliver. Now there's gonna be more on that in just a few minutes. So to, to summarize God's character that he reveals here, he says, I'm changeless. I'm eternally unique. Therefore, he's, he's incomparable, and he's the only Savior. Now, this is the God who reveals himself to his people in the Old Testament, and he hasn't changed. He still desires to reveal himself even to us today. So, that's part of the testimony of his character. Who is he? But also then, what, he's, what has he done? And we see his works then in verse 12 to 15. Look at some of his works. He says, I declared and saved and proclaimed. So God both declares and he proclaims. That is, he speaks. He speaks, he declares what was in the past and what is to come. Both things he reveals and what he has revealed in his word especially is his plans for our salvation. So right in the middle of him declaring and proclaiming is the fact that he and he alone can save. That he's the God who saves. Now, if you skip down in verse 16 and 17, you'll find what's in the background of this passage, and it's the exodus from Egypt. He's going to remind them of, of how he acted in the past in delivering Israel out of Egypt. Verse 16, uh, there we read where God says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick, you, you remember the story of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt with all these signs and wonders, and finally, and Pharaoh says, get out, and they, they get as far as the Red Sea, and then our, the armies of Pharaoh are pursuing them, and they're, they're stuck. There's no way. We, we, we can't go forward into the sea, and we can't go back into the army. Lord, there is no way, and God says, I, I did make a way for them, and it was right through the sea. And that path that God made for his people to deliver them that same path of deliverance became a tomb for the armies of Pharaoh. He's, he's summarizing that here. He's mentioning, remember how I've saved you in the past. And he says, back in verse 12, he says, and you, the ones who I delivered, you are my witnesses now. You are my witnesses. You know me experientially through salvation. Now go and testify. Now notice if you continue then in verse 15, he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, this is the Lord who is your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And in between that, that's very similar to verse 14 where he says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And in between that and verse 15, notice what he says, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them down as fugitives. He says... Just as I redeemed people in the past, I'm going to deliver you from Babylon. I'm the God who delivers. I'm the God who saves. You can trust me. You remember how the Israelites, and we've read this in Isaiah over 42 chapters, over and over when they're faced with, with a dilemma, some threat, they were tempted to run to the other nations for help or to trust their wealth or to, to trust their, their ability to change the politics of the day. And over and over, God would say, I alone can save you. Trust me. 
He's saying that again here, and he says twice, not only I am the Holy One, I am your Holy One. That is at the, the very heart of God's character is that he is holy, and he is holy in his judgments and holy in his salvation. Now, this is important because ultimately what the people of Israel needed, just as the church throughout time and space, what the church needs is not a political or a politically charged or a military answer. The answer is always spiritual, spiritual renewal because the God we are estranged from and the God who delivers us is holy. So he desires people to be holy. He wants a people to be reconciled to him. Spiritual renewal is required. So in summary, in both creation and providence, but especially through the testimony of Scripture, we see how God reveals his character, his works, what he's done, who he is. And his primary works that mentioned here are two things, that he speaks and he saves. That is the work of revelation and the work of redemption. I reveal myself and I deliver. I'll redeem you. The last thing to look at in his works is, we saw it earlier in verse 16, but it's God, God alone can make a way. God says, I'm the one who makes a way through the sea. Beginning in verse 16, all the way down to verse 21. It makes me think of a, there was a praise song years ago written by Don Moen, if maybe you remember that song, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He'll be my guide. He'll hold me closely to his side. There's even a verse in that praise song that he mentions coming through the wilderness and providing rivers in the desert. It's based on this passage here. God says, I am the God, I'm the only God who can make a way for you when there seems to be no way of escape, no way of deliverance. God says, I will do it. But look at what he says in verse 18. He says, remember remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now, obviously, God has just brought to mind how he's delivered them in the past. He isn't saying disregard the past. What he is saying is don't become so locked into that that you think that's the only way that I can deliver you. Don't become so enamored with the past way that you don't see the new way that I'm making for you. Listen to what Alec Mottier says, I think is helpful on this. He says, the past can teach, but it must not bind It is not that the Lord would go back on or rewrite the Exodus revelation, but that the Lord's people should live in the present reality of the Exodus God. So the the path or circumstances will likely change, but God who delivers does not change. Live in the present reality of the Exodus God, the God who delivers. And as we trust that, then we can see, the Israelites could see, how can God do a new thing? How is he providing a new way? And he describes that. He says, I'm doing a new thing. Verse 19, it springs forth. Don't you see it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
I believe the near fulfillment is he will bring his people out of captivity in Babylon. That's the near fulfillment, but it doesn't stop there. Like Isaiah does all the time, he sees the near and it immediately goes into the broader expanse of what God is doing. And he talks about wild beasts honoring me, jackals and ostriches. This harkens back to Isaiah 11, where he talks about the, the, the shoot that'll come from the stump of Jesse, a promise about the Messiah who would come. And remember, when that Messiah comes, the, 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 the wolf will lie down with the lamb, how creation itself will be redeemed and restored. This is a messianic vision of the coming Messiah. God's plan and his way is going to be much bigger and broader than just deliverance from Babylon. And he says in the middle of that, he says, I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. So God is going to make a way in which he not only delivers his people, but he provides for his people. He provides water and refreshment. He will be with his people through the wilderness and through the river, through the hardship even, and he does so. And the word that's used for formed is a potter's hand, like a potter forming a vessel. This, this comes up over and over in Isaiah. He's saying, actually, what God is doing to his people through these circumstances is I'm forming you. I'm applying pressure at places. I'm shaping you and molding you. Why? so that you'll praise me. I read earlier uh, from Psalm 145 verse four about one generation commending your works to another. The psalmist, and that was Psalm 145 verse four. One generation commends your works to another. That is one generation bears witness to another generation. The other night, we had all, all our kids were at home, which was great. It's been great to be together. And we sat around the table and I said, I, I want to hear from, uh, I want you to hear from my generation. I want to hear from your generation. What has God done? We, we know what he's revealed to us in his word. Praise God. But in your life, experientially, how have you seen God work? And the things that get shared most consistently have to do with hardship and suffering when, when we didn't think there was any way that we could move forward, there was no way he would bring us through some trial. What we find is in the very moment of those trials and hardships that we feel the pressures of life and it is the potter's hand forming a people so that we will praise him and then commend his work to other generations, to one another. That's not just the older generation to the younger, but both ways. That's what I believe is the, the great benefit of being in fellowship in the church is that we can commend God's works to one another, share with each other. Let me tell you what God has done. I didn't think there was any way, there was any way that God would work in this circumstance. Let me tell you what he has done. Or even more so, let me tell you how I desperately needed a savior and how God provided through his son. That's the testimony that we give. So, third thing then is what hinders us? What hinders God's people from being faithful witnesses? Uh, this is in, uh, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 43. Yet, you did not call upon me, O Jacob. This may be just a reference to prayer, but often prayer and praise are, are, are connected. So, this is probably prayer and worship. O Jacob, that is his covenant people, you didn't call out to me. 
There was a hindrance, and this is a hindrance for us as well, self-reliance. Self-reliance. Why do we cry out to God? It's when we see, I can't do this. I can't deliver myself. I can't get through this circumstance. I've given myself either over to trying to formulate some path forward, or I've just surrendered myself to worry and anxiety instead of crying out to you, Lord, provide a way. He says to his people, you didn't call out to me. You became self-reliant. You depended on yourselves. And then he says, but you've been weary of me, O Israel. You wouldn't call out to me, but you've become weary of of me. Now, the, the passage that follows, he says, you've not brought me sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. He goes on to mention sweet cane with money. This is offerings, both of of sacrificial offerings, but also gift offerings. It, it, It reads as if they had ceased to go to the temple. They've ceased to worship God. And that could be, that could be the case that they, they weren't worshiping God as he had prescribed, but Many commentators will say there's no, there's no indication historically that the Israelites ever stopped providing sacrifice as long as there was an altar. So what, what does this mean? Again, I, I think Alec Motyer's helpful here because it wasn't that they didn't go through the motions of bringing sacrifices. The problem was that they were only going through the motions He says, actually, what what they were guilty of, and we read this back in Isaiah 41, is they brought sacrifices without a sincere heart. They were going through the motions while their lives were still characterized by disobedience and sin. They weren't really worshiping God. They were actually going through the ritual, thinking if I do the ritual, then I'm all clear. Worship of God became a means of self-justification. Here's what I mean. And I'm going to put it in, in, in for us today. I think I've shared this story. Years ago, I had um, someone who, um, before I came to Riverwood, had someone who wanted to join the church. We went through a new member's class, um, and, and this person professed faith in Christ, and I was excited to welcome them. And the, the, the session was excited to welcome them as a communing member. Praise God for that. They came, and they, they took the Lord's Supper. And then somebody came to me and said, um, this person was relieved because she was, um, now that she's a communing member, because she was afraid if she didn't have communion before she died, then she may go to hell. So this person thought, if I'm not, I can't be justified before God, I can't be accepted by God unless I do the ritual. Now, this is a blessing from God. It is a means of grace. God has graciously given us the sacraments and His Word. But when we begin to think that, that doing the ritual is what saves, then we're no longer putting our trust in the God who saves. Similarly, the Israelites were going through the motions of sacrifices, but they were thinking that the motion would save them, not God. So here's what Matyer says. He says, by making ritual the exclusive content of their religion, they had actually excluded themselves from the benefits the sacrifices were intended to bring. Ritual divorced from moral and spiritual commitment neither satisfies God nor blesses His people. Indeed, on the contrary, they were acting as if their ritual was a technique for manipulating blessing, putting the Lord at their beck and call. Thus, they made a slave of Him. 
So it was self-reliance and then self-justification. This was the hindrance. And then we see God says, you actually burdened me with your sins. God's intention in our salvation, brothers and sisters, is to unburden us. What he wants to do is remove burdens. He wants, to know, wants us to know the freedom of life and salvation in Christ so that we come to worship and we, we use the means he's given out of freedom, out of joy, out of reliance on Jesus. Not so that we can check some self-justifying box or feel self-reliant. No, it is always driving us to Christ. So God's chosen informed people, what we find here, were called to be as witnesses who'd been delivered from bondage so that they would be unburdened by God so, that we could de- so they could delight in Him. But instead, they treated the very means of their freedom, even the, the sacrifices, as a burden that they had to carry. And they burdened God with their self-righteousness and their self-reliance. That can still sound familiar today. So that's the hindrance, self-reliance and self-righteousness. Finally, is there hope? Is there hope for weak and stubborn, willful sinners who God calls to be His his witnesses? What is our confidence as witnesses? That begins in verse 25. God says, I am He who blots out your transgressions. If you look back in the Old Testament at the usage of the word, the term blots out or the word that's translated that way, you'll find it first mentioned in the flood narrative where God sent the flood to judge the earth and he blotted people out. He blotted out all those who had breath. It's his, it's his judgment. Moses said, talked about God blotting names out of his book, an act of judgment, blotting out people. But here God says... Instead of blotting you out, I blot out your transgressions. God blots out guilt for his people instead of blotting out his people. We know that God would ultimately blot out our transgression by judging his own son in our place. He blotted out our sin by imputing our sin to another. As we, as we know and understand and believe in Jesus Christ, we are united to him in such a way that the guilt of our sin is imputed to him. So that he, as he died on the cross, he died as a sin bearer and he was in essence blotted out. The very son of God deemed to be a curse in our place. This is how God dealt with the judgment that we deserve. This is how God would blot out sin. So we look back and we know the substance of this promise, how God would do this. And it is for all who trust in him, who rest in Christ, who see in him the only hope that we have for salvation. This is the gospel that we believe in, that we know is true, that we stand on, that God would blot out the guilt instead of the guilty. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with that. God says, I blot out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why would God blot out the sins of guilty, stubborn, forgetful sinners like us for his own sake? (laughs) For his own sake, for his own glory, to to demonstrate the, the abundance of his mercy and his steadfast love. 
And not only does he blot out our sins, but he chooses to forget them. He chooses to forget them, to remember them no more. Now, not only are we forgiven, our hope is in the forgiveness of God, but also that God disciplines. That's in verses 26 to 28. If you read there, you'll hear that God indeed says, I will discipline you. There is, I will not leave you as one who's not loved. Remember in Hebrews, we hear a father who doesn't discipline is a father who doesn't love. God says, I will love and discipline my people. So we're disciplined people. But then it continues in verse 44 with our hope being and that God forms his chosen people. Look there, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you. There's the potter's hands again. I formed a people for myself. We, brothers and sisters, are a formed people. God has chosen and drawn people, called people to himself. And he forms us. He shapes us and molds us. And he provides for us. That's the other part of this hope and the confidence that we have. He says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. What is the water that God gives? What is the streams that is poured out on the dry ground of our lives? He says, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God pours out his spirit. Just like Jesus said, you're gonna be my witnesses and I'm gonna pour out my spirit so that you can. Our confidence isn't that we can drum this up. It is that God blesses us with his spirit. Blesses us, pouring on us that which gives life that we would spring up. And look at what happens when people's, when God's spirit is poured out on people. One says, I am the Lord's. I belong to Jesus Christ. I belong to God. I'm his. Another even writes the name on his hand, he says. So this, this pouring out of God's spirit People identify themselves with God. I am his. Not only that, he says, another will call on the name of Jacob. And the end of the verse, he says, of verse five, and, the, and name himself by the name of Israel. Those who God's spirit is poured out on not only say, I belong to God, but I belong to his covenant people. Your, God does not intend for your relationship with him to be void of your relationship with the church. They go together. They go together. God's spirit draws us not only into relationship with the Father, but relationship with one another, visibly. This is God's intention. So this is the hope. This is the the hope that we have as people who are frail and weak, not choice, not select, but chosen and loved. Our hope is that we're forgiven, that the God who we bear witness to is a God who's merciful that the God who we worship will discipline us so the things we experience in life are just the, the pressures of the potter's hands forming us and that as we experience that, he will provide for us and his greatest gift, his greatest donation is his very spirit in us individually and as a people. The passage then ends with a reminder. This is God's God declaring again to his people, to his witnesses now who he's called forward, he says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, Israel's Redeemer, his people's Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first and I'm the last. That is not the last time we'll hear that phrase. The book of Revelation, we hear it on the words of Jesus Christ himself. He says, besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? 
There's no one. There's no other God besides me. He challenges them. Ask others to come and and show themselves to be God, but none could. None can can bear witness to himself as God has done. And so he says in verse 8, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is not only the hope of our salvation, but he is the head of the church. He is our king. He is our redeemer. And he has, he has called us to know and to live in fellowship with him, to delight, to find delight in the union that we have with Christ, the salvation that's ours. So that we, who are weak and frail and often fearful, that we will know that we are forgiven, that we are formed and being formed, so that we can be fearless and faithful as witnesses for Jesus Christ. May this be true of us today and in the coming year and the rest of our lives. Please bow with me in prayer. Holy Spirit, thank you for your inspired word, even through Isaiah and how we see in the word that was given through the prophet thousands and thousands of years ago that We can read it and see the fulfillment of this in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and how you, Lord Jesus, have called us now, people who you have blessed with your spirit. You've called us as people who've been forgiven and being formed, people who you are renewing more and more day after day, that you've called us to now be your witnesses. May we bear witness to one another, Lord, within this church. Help us to to open our mouths and be quick to share with each other what you have done and what you're doing. Help us to have eyes to see how you are at work and, and give us zeal in joining you in that work. And Lord, give us a delight, a delight in who you are and what you've done, and because of that, who we are now in Christ. And may that delight and that praise overflow, Lord Jesus into gospel declaration. Do this, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.